I find the older I get and spending the last 30 odd years of my career at predominantly white institutions, you know, when I think back on growing up in Mississippi, I am less angry about some of the things that happen to colored people, and I'm extraordinarily infuriated by what was done year after year, day after day, to every white child born. Because every one of them had to be trained to become and to remain a racist. Every one of them. This audio is from a 2013 panel discussion co-hosted by Vanderbilt and Frist Universities called Reflections of the Civil Rights Movement in Nashville Then and Now. The voice you are hearing belongs to Vanderbilt Professor of Philosophy, Dr. Lucius Outlaw. The institutions worked very, very hard to ensure that white people were virtually totally ignorant about people of African descent, even institutions of higher education. They made sure you knew nothing about black folk other than what place we were supposed to be in and how to remain and keep us in our place and how not to get polluted by undue contact with black people. But the ignorance that was promoted in white people has been utterly astounding. Ignorance of the highest certification. Still in my discipline of philosophy, even at Vanderbilt, you can get a PhD in philosophy and never ever have to read a text written by a person of color and be sent off to teach in schools increasingly populated by people of color. I'm just now coming off vacation, and so this is the last in a run of shows that are a little off format. I'm Alex Steed, and this is Nashville Demystified. Nashville Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a commercial video and content production firm with offices here in Nashville. And we own this town, a collection of podcasts produced by Nashvillians. Typically, Nashville Demystified is a conversation and uh, it's interview heavy. But again, I'm just off vacation, so I'm without an interview. So this is the focus of what follows. Uh, on my way back from the airport, my Uber driver used the N-word twice. He'd been so kind the whole time, and he told me this sad, desperate life story. He'd actually made me laugh a bunch of times, and he was really quite a character. He was an older guy, and he'd just lost both of his parents, and he sounds like it was a, a tragic loss, but he lost his wife a couple years before you know, single dad, he told me about his hobbies, his successes and failures. I guess he was trying to describe how upstanding he found uh, one black business owner and peer of his. And he was dropping me off. And right there, uh, there it was. Um, ironically, he was more or less quoting the now famous Chris Rock routine from the late 90s, in which he was basically saying there are black people and there are N-words. You know, and this fellow he was talking about is no N-word in his words. It was surreal. And I was like, oh, great. Uh, now you know where I live. And... This is all I could think about when I reported it to Uber. And I'm not a person who remembers some mythical time that was kinder than this one. 
anytime I'm confronted with the ways that we can be disgusting, that white people in particular can be horrendous and lean on our privilege and just hide uh, in a fantasy world, it's a gut punch. You know, it's a letdown. And frankly, it's just like such a fucking waste. On one hand, I will say part of my brain came to his defense because I saw in him a lot of white folks who don't fancy themselves racist but totally are um, and who would pride himself on making such a keen distinction, even though it's absolutely the wrong way to look at literally anything. You know, I saw in him family members and parents and family or friends that I grew up with. Uh, and on the other hand, I saw that he was also a person who was making the call and who should be picked up for rides and when and why. And I saw that he was likely displacing someone in the workforce who I, I don't know, doesn't casually use the N word when he feels at home and safe around other white folks. When he said it, I immediately felt this surreal feeling like it wasn't happening. Again, we were approaching my place and I'm looking at it and thinking that this is where my girlfriend hangs out on the front porch a whole bunch. And I stopped seeing the sweet man and I thought of how white men can be when they're told that they're wrong. And I thought about how intense and vindictive they can be and how spiteful and angry and how much they can lash out. I thought about the fact that a couple of weeks ago, I was actually with the host uh, of, of You're Wrong About Sarah Marshall, but we were, we were driving around um, and we'd been followed by a car that had, had uh, uh, we had a minor altercation with on Gallatin. So I slowed to let about five or six black guys cross the street. That's significant uh, for the dynamics coming up. Um, and a man behind me laid on his horn the entire time. He was a white guy. Uh, and, you know, I'm not necessarily proud, but I gave him the finger. And the scene, you know, the scene sort of felt straight, pulled straight from Seinfeld because it was one in which one of the guys who I was letting pass thought I was giving him the finger and he got agitated. And, <laughs> and so I shout, explain, no, it's the guy who's honking at us that I'm giving the finger to. And it felt like, one of the funniest portrayals of the present and enduring American moment, you know, just this dynamic between these three groups of people. And then the man who honked at me followed me to my house. Two funny notes. One, he was driving a red Prius, which, you know, outside of a beige Prius is probably the least aggressive car I can possibly imagine. The other is that he didn't realize I lived on a dead end road, actually very close to the end of it. And so when he saw me uh, get out of the car at the house, he, you know, realized that he couldn't go any further and he had to do a three point turn in front of my place. Actually, it was like a multi point turn in front of my place to leave. And I just stood there staring at him cross armed and laughing. But it's all very funny until you remember that this is virtually the same equation that leads to mass shooting after mass shooting and domestic murder after domestic murder. Some white guy ill-equipped to see beyond his own rage can't keep it together and shows up at your house or he gets out of the car. You know, he has guns. Um, he goes and gets guns if he doesn't have any. He is an infinite threat, this white man, uh, as we as we now know it. And and you know, then even when he's not that threat, even when he's not that overt of a threat, um, he develops some narrative in which it's actually black people or brown people or queer people or women or all of the above that are ultimately what's wrong with the country, not a bunch of people like him who can't get beyond their own rage. White people, especially angry, down and out white men are fucking terrifying. 
This weekend I was on the plane next to two dudes who were speaking Arabic and they'd been so lovely and kind to me. Like every interaction was, was just lovely. And I'd wonder how much of it was natural, like that's who they are and how much of it was them preemptively and performatively letting me, a white guy, know that they were not a threat because it can be safely assumed that I'm thinking as much while ignoring all the white domestic terrorists that appear to strike if not daily, every other day, and if not every other day, they appear to do a whole hell of a lot of damage when they finally do. The whole time I'm looking around for every white guy and looking at every white guy in the cabin and hoping that they hadn't snapped and they hadn't somehow snuck a gun on board with them or, or were plotting against the rest of us. Back to the Uber driver. I've called people out to their faces so many times in my life I punched one guy in the face for using the word a number of years ago, uh, the N-word, I should say, and I believe in confronting overt racism, and I believe in untangling systems of racism, but I'm also not scared to underscore that in that moment, that surreal moment, as I described before, I felt deeply afraid, and it made me able, just for passing seconds, to touch the fear that my friends always feel, always. Before I go on, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Consider giving it a review if you can, sharing with a friend. We're on Instagram and Twitter, um, Nashville Demystified. I think on Twitter we're N Demystified. And we're on the hospitalization for a sex headache that is Facebook. If you have any feedback that you want to send to me directly or ideas for future shows, you can reach me at podcast at knack-factory.com. That is podcast at knack-factory.com. Yeah, that's where you can find me. I know a lot of my friends from the North are going to jump right on believing that this obviously would happen in Tennessee, but it's not like it's something we haven't heard a whole bunch in Maine or in Massachusetts. My Yankee friends will forget um, that you can still see Confederate flags waving all over Maine uh, in the fucking North. And we just got out from under eight years of a governorship that kicked off with the executive telling the NAACP that they can basically kick his, kiss his ass in suggesting, uh, before encouraging folks to shoot and kill them, that drug dealers are predominantly black men who are impregnating, heavy quote, our white women. While down and out white men are terrifying, it's leadership like that of Governor LePage, who was said to be the precursor of Trump's style of executive leadership that is the most terrifying because of the impact they have on policy. So take, for example, House Speaker Glenn Cassida, uh, you know, a Republican here in Tennessee, who announced that he would step down from his role last month, um, but he won't be doing so until August. Guesses as to why this is the case apply to the amount he'll be able to collect from the state after uh, clearing uh, another birthday. Another guess coming from within his own party is that he hopes to have more of a hand in picking who is selected so that he can maintain a, quote, shadow speakership position, but you'll likely recall that Cassida was disgraced because, get ready, his former chief of staff and communications director, Cade Cothran, uh, uh, where, where does one even begin? Vanderbilt Divinity student Justin Jones protested at the Tennessee State House over a bust honoring a Confederate general. He was legally ordered to stay away from the property for, you know, being black and taking offense to 
Confederate generals still being honored in state houses. Jones claims Catherine then, it's a little complicated, but basically forged emails to make it look like Jones had violated the order. In uncovering all of this, a number of things surfaced about Catherine and Casada, Cassada. The ones the media seemed to focus on most were related to how gross these guys are about women and how Catherine admitted to doing coke at the state house. And while these things deserved attention, to be sure, Catherine was also an outright racist on a number of occasions. And so while many laws already tend to wield heavier hands against those who are not white men, having passed through a system created by us, white men, you have these overt racist misogynists, uh, at least one of them being a cokehead, ensuring that the laws that pass through them are. With the heat intensifying, Catherine eventually had to go. Side note, it's, I think it's becoming evident that, that Catherine might end up still receiving a $34,000 payout. His salary, by the way, is $200,000 a year. And Nashville teachers are fighting to get just a 10% raise this year after going years without any sort of increase in pay. I recently talked with a teacher in North Nashville who said that 18 months had recently passed in which a predominantly black elementary school went without a grade five math teacher. But because Cassida boasts on Twitter that he's an unapologetic Republican exclamation point. The GOP expressed no confidence in him by way of a vote because if there's one thing the GOP hates more than black folks who take offense at statues honoring the people who wanted to ensure they stayed slaves forever, it's Republicans who remind the whole of the party approach, outlook, and policy and remind that it is disgusting. They're literally bad at everything outside of corruption, myopia, misogyny, and clan-style racism. And, as Catherine proved, somehow they're even bad at these things. These things that in their hearts they embrace more dearly than anything else. They're bad at those things too. They're bad at everything. Since submitting my complaint to Uber, I received an update that says they are, quote, investigating and will contact the driver whilst somehow protecting me. They are, quote, sorry to hear that it was rather unprofessional of your driver. Like, what is that conversation going to be like with the driver? I guess if he uses the N-word with literally every passenger, there's no way he'll single me out. We close with a few more thoughts from Dr. Outlaw. Thank you so much for listening to Nashville Demystified. We'll be back with a full format show next week. Um, you know, follow, like, subscribe, do all the things that helps. Again, back to Dr. Outlaw. On September 11th in 2001, four commercial airliners were hijacked. Three were flown into buildings, one into a field in Pennsylvania. Over the course of that day, with the destruction of the World Trade Center, over 3,000 people lost their lives. In response, the United States of America literally declared war, went to war, first in Afghanistan, next in Iraq, what I think a majority of Americans, possibly many in this room, regarded as a justified war. 
an unprovoked attack that killed thousands of innocent citizens. Now, what I want you to do is to compare our national response to one day's action and the deaths that occurred by thinking about what happened to millions of people over the course of nearly 300 years. How many African peoples and their descendants died in over 300 years of dehumanizing enslavement and oppression. And yet, to this day, there has been no organized response directed at white people by people of African descent that even begins to approximate the response of this nation state to one day's activities and 3,000 deaths. How do you account for the difference?